Welcome, grace and peace. Thank you for joining us today. I'm back here with my brothers, Sam and Carter, and uh, we're here for the season finale of In the Same Boat, a series on the book of Jonah, which we've been going for eight weeks. Man, I've preached through the book of Jonah before, and I've never preached through Jonah over eight weeks, four weeks max. But I've loved doing that because we've been paying attention to every single detail of this story. There's so much packed in there. And so this has been an amazing series. What's been your favorite parts uh, of this series? Well, speaking of details, um, the irony, just noticing the irony in the story that there's not a lot of difference between, and we don't like to admit this, uh, between the preacher and the pew. God sends a rebellious prophet to preach the gospel to a rebellious city. And, you know, Jonah finds himself reluctantly obeying uh, preaching judgment to a group of people to which he had a lot in common with. And so just finding the irony in the text and just kind of reminding myself how much I resemble Jonah, especially in these times. Yeah, we don't have it all together, no, do we? Absolutely not. How about yeah. you, Carter? I think for me, my favorite thing about the series is certainly the red pants. <laughs> yes. I mean, you brought they're back. back. These, are, these are the pants that Jonah came out the whale. Yeah, it looked yes, like you came out of the well, whale, dog. <laughs> I came out of the whale. <laughs> No, I mean, uh, in all seriousness, I, I love the providential nature of the series. We talked about that at the beginning of the series, how we were praying with, um, you know, the leaders of Aponte Church, our sister church in Brazil, and we had planned this at the beginning of the year, and God's perfect timing, you know, for this series to speak into issues that we could have never have imagined we'd be facing as a country, as a city, and as a church and that has enabled me to have hard but really good conversations with a lot of leaders and members in our church. Uh, and that has been really impactful because it's drawn me closer to them, but it's also reinforced the reality that our church is humble and is fighting for unity, even though we have diverse perspectives. We're really, truly all in the same boat. Mm. Well, for me, besides the theme of the series, come on. The theme song, oh, yeah. yeah. How about the theme of the series? Song of the year. Netflix. We're all together. <laughs> if you don't know this, uh, this song was written, produced, and recorded by members of the Aponte Church, our sister church in Brazil, and they sent it over to us. They recorded it in English, in Portuguese, and in Spanish, the theme song. So that was phenomenal. And speaking of themes, uh, the main theme of the book of Jonah, I would think, is the theme of grace. And... It's present even in how the book ends. It ends with grace. The book does not end the way Jonah wants his story to end or the story of Nineveh to end. The book ends with the way God wants things to end. God's ways are always better than our ways because God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. And I'm just thinking about the season where we're going through, that we're going through right now. Uh, we don't know how things are going to end. I take just from the times that we have planned our reopenings and we've had to push them back and to push them back because we just don't know. And things may not end our way, guys, but it will end God's way. And God's way is the best way because it's the way of grace. And so uh, where we find ourselves today is Jonah chapter four. We're gonna read from verses five through 11. Follow along with me. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about this theme of grace, by the way, the title of the sermon is Grace Wins. We're going to look at it under three headings. First, the battle of grace. Secondly, the power of grace. And lastly, the story of grace. Well, like you said, we're at the end of the story, and we have this uh, sort of acted parable in the middle of the chapter. It's here to enlighten Jonah on the character of his spiritual condition. Like I've been saying for several weeks, God's providence is intended to not just primarily encourage or console us, but primarily to illuminate us into our greatest spiritual need. And so if I was going to summarize the, the, the story this is kind of like a comic strip where Jonah goes from, no, I won't go, to, uh, okay, I'll go, to, uh, I'm here, to, I knew I shouldn't have come. I knew it. I knew you were a compassionate God, so quick to forgive, so eager to save, so unceasingly patient. I knew I couldn't trust you. I knew that if I got a God like you next to a people like this, and they made even a, a gesture or just like side-eyed toward the direction of repentance, you would show them grace. You would show them mercy. That's why I didn't want to go. That's why I didn't want to obey your word to begin with, because I knew the implications of the people in Nineveh. I'm done. I quit. I'm out. Kill me. Kill me already. Jonah's problem is not theological. It's experiential. Jonah has a theological agreement with God. He's right about a lot of things. For example, Jonah and God are right in believing that Nineveh is a bunch of wicked people. Jonah and God are right in believing that salvation only comes from the Lord. Jonah and God are right in believing that God is gracious and merciful and, you know, all the other attributes that we know about God. Jonah's problem is not the theological agreement that he has with God. The problem is that this theological agreement is not producing a heart agreement. In other words, Jonah and God don't have the same heart toward Nineveh, and there lies the battle. There lies the struggle and the contrast, because if you begin to trace God's fingerprints or God's, you know, the, the way God's, God is doing things behind the scenes, whether it's the, the storm or the sailors or the plant or the worm or the, the wind or the, the fact that God takes notice of the, the children and even the animals were repenting. You were talking about, you know, a couple of weeks ago. You see that God's love is much greater, much greater than the selfish, narrow love of his disobedient servant to the degree that we are all willing to give access to what's beneath the layers in our hearts is the degree to which we'll experience freedom 
in God. It doesn't matter how much theology we know. It doesn't matter how much degrees we have or PhDs we got attached to our name. If we're emotionally unhealthy and socially maladjusted because of disobedience, guess what? We're still baby Christians. And so God provides shade for the baby. Right? The end of verse 6. He says here, he's happy. He's happy. Out of all the things to be excited about, right? We get happy, be honest, like when people respond. You were talking about people responding to your preaching. And when somebody says, that's a great, great word. We get happy. We get joy. People responding to, to, to the worst sermon ever, right? You got nothing. No joy. No happy. We get happy when people turn from their path of destruction. God is turning from destroying the city. You got nothing. Jonah's not happy. But the minute God decides to give comfort to Jonah, this guy can't get enough of this. And you know what, church? We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. That while it's true that God may have called some of us to be exactly what we are, yet he never called you to settle in, build a little booth, right? Get comfortable, completely detached from your neighbors. Because real compassion, real compassion is the voluntary attachment of our heart to somebody else's heart. Attaching ourselves to somebody, and as a result, the sadness of their condition affects us. It makes us sad, and that's deeply uncomfortable, but it's the character of compassion. Watch this. If you find yourself, right, looking at people, right, they're suffering because of their own disobedience or something stupid that they did, and you find yourself gloating over it on Instagram, or you find yourself mocking them over it with your Twitter fingers. You know what you're doing? You're detaching yourself from them because you don't want their unhappiness to be your unhappiness. And to be clear, because I can already hear some people saying, hey, that's not healthy. I've got the book Boundaries. What's, that's not healthy. You know. To be clear, I'm not talking about jumping in the water and drowning with people. I'm talking about Showing compassion enough to pull them out when they go overboard, especially those you'd rather see drown. It's in Jonah that we learn that our hearts ought to beat for those who don't deserve mercy, for those who don't deserve grace. Why? Because that's exactly the same boat that we're all in. And so for the first time, Jonah's happy. He's happy, and God's like, good for you. Jonah, you're finally showing a concern for something besides yourself. Hey, you think it's okay if I show a strong emotional concern for something besides myself? Is that okay with you, Jonah? Like, I don't know, like, how about showing a concern for 120,000 uh, misguided people made in, in my image and their, anim and their pets, their animals? You know, it reminds me of another parable Jesus shared about the vineyard and the workers. Like, some workers work all day, some work half a day, some work a couple hours, some barely make it before they clock in, but they all get the same pay. And, and at the end, it, it leads to complaining and, and, you know, people are griping. And the owner of the vineyard says, hey, don't I got a right to do with what I own? I, I could do what I want with what is, is mine. And I, and I think even for us Christians, we, we respond to the teachings of God, to the teachings of Christ in a sort of detached way. We agree theologically yeah, we got to love people. God is love, so we got to love people. You know, uh, we got to bless people. God is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We got to bless people. God, you know, God is a blesser. We got to forgive people. But, but experientially, what we do is we tell ourselves, but I'm not God. I'm not going to show grace to people who've hurt me. I'm not going to show grace to people who've mistreated me. 
I'm not going to show mercy for people who are trying to destroy our, our country, I mean our comfort. <laughs> I'm not going to, that's not how the world works, right? And so here's what happens. Here's what we do. We reduce people. By the way, we're complex human creatures, right? We're not just one thing, but here's what we do. We reduce people to this one trait to, at best, you know, the trait that annoys us at best or, or, or emotionally repulses us at worst. And what we do, and we do that in order for us to detach from them. And God's like, no, actually, you got it backwards. This is my world. <laughs> and, and, and the way it's supposed to work is you fully reconciled to me and you fully reconciled to him. And if we're a community of people that are formed by the cross, we need to live differently because, not because we're better, but because I've shown you uncommon grace and uncommon compassion. Church, I want to do a little exercise here. I want, how many of us have in our life a difficult person that we're living with? You imagine that person. Just put it. You guys do it too. You guys got that difficult person in your head. Maybe some of us got like three or four. I don't know. You got a difficult person, and on staff, you believe <laughs> red pants, and you believe <laughs> I'm not dressing like you guys, okay? And you believe you believe that if this person was removed from your life, you would follow Jesus and His teachings so much better, right? If that's you, raise your hand, and by raise your hand, I mean give me a thumbs up emoji on the chats. The chat should be littered with thumbs up emoji. If that's you, and I know, listen, I know it's difficult because. For some of us, we're married to that person, right? Or, or we got a young adult man baby living in the house. I don't know. But let me ask you, and I'm going to challenge you with three questions if that's you. And I want the moderators on the chats to write these questions because I'm going to fly through them fast. I want people to reference uh, uh, them. If that's you, could it be, first question, could it be that that person is in your life as an invitation for you to experience maturity and growth in God's grace? Second question, could it be that that person is there to show you all of the unacceptable parts of yourself that needs redeeming? I tell people all the time at Springs, you got to be careful. Sometimes God will put something you need in somebody you don't like. That's God for you. You got to be careful. Here's the last question. Here's the last question. Do you have a theological agreement that makes God into a God that you feel comfortable with? If you find yourself answering your, you know, in the affirmative more, more than you'd like to, church, remember that God is inviting us to share in the experience of not just receiving grace, but showing grace to other people. He's inviting us into the pilgrimage of compassion that, by the way, is always greater than our personal comfort. Man, that's so good. <laughs> that's convicting, <laughs> challenging, the battle yep. of grace. And... You know, when we look in this passage, as you mentioned, the, the comic strip nature of Jonah, Sam, and kind of diving in here in chapter 4, there's some interesting details. One of the details that's interesting is that the word discomfort there in verse 6 is the same word, the same Hebrew word that is used to describe the wickedness of the Ninevites. So if you take that and you reread it, here's what verse 6 says. Would say, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his wickedness. To save him from his wickedness. And it says that, as you mentioned, Jonah is exceedingly glad for this plant. 
He is covered. He is receiving relief and shade from this plant and its covering, though he doesn't recognize it in the moment, and saving him from his own wickedness. As he sits outside the city, as he judges the city, as he hopes and he probably prays that God will pour judgment on them and they will fall apart. And he is completely unaware of God's grace in his life. He's completely unaware of a plant that has miraculously grown over several hours to produce this shade to relieve him. And why? Why is he unaware? It's because Jonah fails to recognize. He fails to recognize the wickedness of his own heart. So he receives readily God's grace. He is grateful for God's grace. However, he does not see that he's in the same boat as the Ninevites, who also need relief from their wickedness. He thinks, I'm not like the Ninevites. And God is saying to him, yes, you are. You're exactly like the Ninevites. And he's going to teach that lesson to him. You mentioned, Sam, that we need to be battling and contending for compassion in people's lives. That that battle of grace and those convicting questions should lead us to show compassion to people, even people that we disagree with. And the question I've been asking is, why is it so difficult for us to do that? Why is it so challenging? And I think it's so challenging, church, because we have failed to recognize and experience the power of grace. Rather, we have begun to presume upon grace. We've begun to think like Jonah that we deserve grace. We've kind of earned it. I mean, theologically, we may say grace is unearned favor, but we kind of feel and believe as if we've done enough and we're mature enough and we're solid enough or theologically sound enough that we deserve God's grace and compassion, but those wicked people do not. We presumed upon it. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus spends the bulk of his ministry combating this very dangerous thought that we somehow deserve grace and that people presume upon it. And that's as he speaks into the lives of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, were, they were religious leaders, but they were theologically conservative. They were obsessed with focusing on their own personal responsibility and personal piety. They believed themselves to be morally upstanding. They were consistent. They were zealous. And they were also disciplined. These are all good things. However, good things untested become ultimate things. Good things that are untested will become ultimate things, and they will become things that you judge other people through, the lens by which you judge other people. And so the Pharisees would look at those who were not consistent, who were not as morally upstanding as them, who were not theologically conservative, who were not disciplined, and they would judge them as wicked and even dangerous. The Pharisee is the person that would be in the comment section on Facebook and replying to tweets looking to be contentious. They would be the ones posting intentionally triggering thoughts. Why? Because the Pharisee believes that they are on the right side, that they have the right perspective, that they are morally and theologically sound. And so they will combat. They will brag about how many people are unfollowing them, how many people they're owning with facts. 
Because the Pharisee will never pause for a moment and say, maybe I'm wicked. Maybe my perspective is misguided. Maybe my thoughts and my beliefs are influenced by sin too. Because the Pharisee presumes upon grace. The Pharisee has very little grace for other people. The Pharisee is consumed by judging the outward behavior of others while totally ignoring that every single human heart needs a deep work of the gospel of grace that only God can provide. And here we see a Pharisee-like man in Jonah, a man that Jesus calls, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, <laughs> whitewashed tombs. And what is, what is he getting at? And he's getting at, you can be, church, theologically or doctrinally sound and spiritually decaying. You can be doctrinally sound and spiritually decaying. You see, we know this because there is a warning given to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 2. For some encouragement to this church in Ephesus. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. See, the encouragement to the church of Ephesus is you have been strong on obedience. You have been strong on sin. You have been disciplined and consistent and theologically sound. You have been rooting out false and dangerous teachers from the church. You have been enduring in a difficult city. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan, diverse city with people of all different beliefs and all different religions, people that elevated passion over everything else and pleasure and were motivated by their feelings. And the encouragement is, hey, church, you've been consistent and firm in a difficult environment. But then look what it says. But I have this against you in verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. Here's the, the rebuke to Ephesus. Church, you're theologically sound, but you're spiritually decaying because you don't show love. You've abandoned love. Repent and turn back to having love at the center. Why? Because the greatest force for change in the world is gracious love. The greatest force for change in the world is gracious love. The Apostle Peter, who denies Christ three times in his greatest hour of need, then meets the resurrected Christ who comes to him on the beach and doesn't cast judgment, shows him gracious love and says, Peter, you're going to build my church. You're going to be the rock of my church. Go feed my sheep. And it changes Peter. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, outcasted by his community, hated by all, and yet Jesus comes through and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat in your house tonight, and shows him gracious love, and Zacchaeus is radically changed where he pays back his debts and he gives money to the poor. Gracious love is the greatest force for change in the world, and this is what God is teaching Jonah. He's under this plan. He's exceedingly happy because he is release, receiving relief from his wickedness and shade and comfort. And God sends a worm and takes that plant away in a scorching east wind. And so now he feels that discomfort again. He feels that heat. He, 
not yet but will begin to understand his own wickedness. And Jonah's response to God is, I just want to die. Just kill me. And look what God says to him in verse 10. He says, and the Lord said to you, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God says to Jonah, Jonah, you care more about plants than people. You care more about plants than people. You are ready to receive my grace, but you refuse to extend it. You are completely okay with receiving compassion, but you refuse to show compassion. You are a prophet called to preach repentance and bring people back to faith as I use you and you're sitting outside the city in judgment. You see, love, God is teaching Jonah, is not earned and change is not grown. Love is a gift and change is a response that comes by way of the grace of God. It is a gift and a response that comes by way of the grace of God. And so I have a question for you, church, a question I've been asking myself this week. Do you have the Jonah syndrome? The Jonah syndrome where you care about something more than people. How do you know? How do you know if you have the Jonah syndrome and if you care about something more than people? I want you to imagine, like Sam asked earlier, those difficult people, those people that you disagree with, those people that you think are dangerous. And I want you to ask yourself two questions. How do you treat and talk about them or to them? How do you treat them and how do you talk about them? Is it with compassion and mercy and grace and patience, which is consistent with the character of God, or is it with judgment? And not only how do you talk to them and about them to their face, but behind their back. And then the second question would be, where are you sitting? Where are you sitting? Are you outside the city, outside the community of those people that you disagree with and you don't like and you think are dangerous, casting judgment, hoping and wishing and praying even that you would witness their demise? Or are you in the community with them, listening and praying, showing mercy and sharing truth and love? So that will reveal whether or not you have the Jonah syndrome. And if you do, what do you do? Just say, okay, I'm going to really work hard at being more empathetic and being more kind. No. You begin to recognize that maybe you have begun to presume upon grace and you run back to God to receive and to experience afresh the power of grace that will change everything in your life. As we see, it changes everything in Jonah's life. Mm, yeah. Grace has the power, Carter, like you said, to change our story. Everything. Many of us here have changed our life stories uh, through the power of grace mm -hmm. in our lives. Some of you who are watching with us at home, your lives, and we know some of your stories, have been changed by the power of the grace of Jesus Christ that was revealed to you, mm -hmm. and your life has been completely transformed. So uh, let's talk about the story story of grace. I remember several years ago reading a book by Don Miller, Donald Miller, a book entitled A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. It's a book that talks about the power of stories. I don't know if you've read this book, but one of the things that he says in the book, that's actually probably his main thesis, is that the point of stories is to show character transformation. 
is to show that the characters uh, are, are changing throughout the story, through the different turns in the plot. So if you take uh, some of the best stories ever told, take Victor Hugo's novels, uh, take Les Mis, Jean Valjean, he is a person that changes. The, the character, Jean Valjean, in that story is a person that profoundly changes through the story, right? He, he's, he's, the story begins with one Jean Valjean, and the story ends with a different Jean Valjean. If you take uh, Frodo in The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien, Frodo changes through that journey, through that story. If you take the gospel accounts in the lives of the disciples, they change through the story of, of Jesus, right? That's being told. Uh, there's one Peter before the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then there's a different Peter after the crucifixion and the resurrection. There is one Matthew before when he was a tax collector and another one who becomes a follower of Jesus and a gospel writer, right? So the disciples are changing. Jesus changes in the gospel story. He changes into the resurrected Christ who appears to the disciples in glory after the resurrection. He is profoundly changed and transformed. These are the elements of great stories where characters are being transformed. They are changing. Now, the puzzling thing about the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is that it appears that Jonah has not changed. We have reached the end of the story, and we have had indications in the middle of the story that Jonah may change or that he is changing, right? Jonah starts uh, disobedient, defiant. God says, go to Nineveh. He takes a ship in the opposite direction. God whirls up a storm. You know, you, you, you all know what happens. He ends up being thrown aboard, swallowed by a big fish. He has a conversion moment and experience in that fish's belly. He's vomited in the beach of Nineveh, and he obeys the word of the Lord. And you're like, oh, yeah, go Jonah. Jonah is changing, man. You know, God's discipline in his life is finally working. And then you get to the end of the story when God decides to spare the city. You see Jonah angry, as angry as he was and defiant as he was in the beginning of the story. And you're like, man, what's going on here? This is puzzling and confusing. Now, is it possible for someone to experience the grace of God and remain the same? I say that one of the main characteristics of a Christian, or actually the main characteristic of a Christian, when someone asks me, what is a Christian? I say a Christian is somebody that profoundly gets grace. It's not somebody that has memorized the scriptures or somebody that does all the right things, but it's somebody that gets grace. And somebody that has seen, moreover, the grace of God in their lives. See, I do not believe that someone that has come in contact with the grace of God remains the same. See, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in irresistible grace. It's one of the five points of Calvinism. That grace, when the grace of God ultimately pursues us and keeps pursuing us as he's pursuing Jonah here in the story, we change. But... I read the story and Jonah hasn't changed. Oh, really? Think about it. How else would we know about Jonah's defiance and disobedience, about his prayer in the belly of the fish, about his, I hate the God of love speech that he gives 
here in the fourth chapter if Jonah himself hadn't told his own story. Jonah is the one telling the story, guys. Now, the rebuttal is, okay, this is a myth. Someone made this story up, and this is a myth designed to encourage people at a specific time and, and place. And what I want to remind you is, and we've already established this in a previous sermon, Jonah is a historical figure. He served under Jeroboam II, who was a king of Israel. It's recorded in the book of 2 Kings. And so all scholars will agree that Jonah was a historical figure, which means that Jonah was the one who wrote his own story, and he passed it down to us. Now, what's even more puzzling is, why would Jonah write a story about his failures? Would you write a story and make a fool of yourself to the world, tell your story, and place yourself as the main character of that story, as someone that's always messing up and screwing up? Man, we live in this world of social media. We're always editing our image. We never tell the truth about ourselves. Oh, here's my beautiful family in this awesome vacation. You don't know the fights that are happening, you know, in, in, in the hotel room. Okay, the stupid things that are happening, taking place. The man baby's coming out. They don't come out in the pictures, Sam. They don't come out in the pictures. But they come out in real life scenarios because we're always editing ourselves. And therefore, the only reason why Jonah would tell the story the way that he does with all his flaws in it, unedited, is because he has been profoundly changed by grace. Think about this. Man, it takes a lot of courage for you to tell the world about your shortcomings and your flaws. The, the story starts with Jonah as a coward, and now here he is a brave man who tells the story of his shortcomings. And it's only because he is secure in God's love that he can tell this story. It's only because he understands that he is simultaneously a horrible sinner, but someone that is deeply loved, unconditionally loved by God. He can tell this story only because he understands the gospel of grace. He has come to understand this, that God has constantly been pursuing him up to the point that he has changed as a person. And, you know, the reason why someone that understands the gospel can be honest about their failures. In fact, moralism hides our failures in our sins with dishonesty, right? There's a, there's a little chart uh, sonship chart that shows that. I don't know if you remember that. We use that in our discipleship classes. But, you know, moralism hides sin with dishonesty. Like religious people, they're as messed up as any of us are. And Sam, I'm so glad that you brought that up in the beginning of the sermon because that is true. I am as jacked up as you are, and these guys are the same. <laughs> Sorry to confess your sins. Yeah, I should be confessing my own sins, but that's true. I know this about you guys because we've, we've done life together for, for quite a while now, and, and, and we're broken people. And, but a religious person will not admit that because that's a sign of weakness, and maybe it's a sign of ungodliness, and so they hide that with dishonesty. They're not real. See, the gospel affords you this honesty and this transparency and this vulnerability. Why? 
Because we are not saved by that which we can do, but by that which Christ has done for us. It's no longer our righteousness that counts, but the righteousness of Christ that stands on our behalf. That's the beauty of the gospel is that when you put your life's trust and hope in Jesus, you don't stand before God anymore with your own righteousness, which Isaiah says there are like filthy rags, but you stand before God in the righteous and the perfect righteousness of Christ. And therefore, you're both a saint and a sinner. You're someone that has horrible flaws, but that God is perfecting and working because he loves you. He unconditionally loves you. So the gospel affords us that. Are you someone that, you know, you, you find yourself hiding your flaws, you're uncomfortable about sharing your insecurities, about your life story, your past? You need the gospel of Jesus. You need to be impacted by the grace of Jesus. And therefore, I have three applications, three closing applications for the sermon today. Uh, first, I want you to stop resisting grace. Now, while I said that grace is irresistible, ultimately, uh, God's grace wins, right? It, even if you resist it and God pursues you, at the end, the grace of God will win. But you don't have to go through all the unnecessary pains and sufferings that Jonah has gone through here in order to get grace, <laughs> Listen, you don't have to go through the unnecessary storms of life. You don't have to spend a season of your life in a belly of a fish, a proverbial fish belly, right? You don't have to be vomiting in some weird beach somewhere. You don't have to experience what Jonah is experiencing here, this anger that desires to take his own life. You don't need to go through all of that. All you need to do is to stop resisting grace. How do you stop resisting grace? It's you just trust in that which Jesus Christ has done for you, and that is enough. But then secondly, I want you to learn your story. You know why? Because most people do not know their story. Most people don't know their story. And when you don't know your story you are prone to commit the same mistakes, the same errors of the past. I know people, and I'm sure you do as well, that keep committing the same mistakes over and over again because they fail to know their own story. You know, in my previous church, there was this lady who kept being in relationships with horrible men over and over and over and over again until somebody was able to listen to her story and identify the themes of her life, her longings, her shortcomings, and how the grace of God could cover that. And then she was now free from that man addiction. So here's an advice for you. Let me give you an advice. Find somebody that's a skilled listener, ideally a counselor, It can be a pastor. There's, there are people at Crossbridge, like Debbie Peterson is one of them. Just giving a shout out to Debbie. That can listen to your story and help identify themes in your story so that you can see yourself. That, that These people will put a mirror in front of you and allow you to see not only 
all the things that have happened in your life that has led you to be the person that you have become, but they will help you to see how God has been at work in your life up to this point and in the present as well. So learn your story. It's very important. Secondly, don't just, actually, thirdly, don't just know your story, but share your story. The story of Jonah has helped many people, millions of people through thousands of years. Can you imagine if Jonah had decided not to share his story because he was uncomfortable about sharing, about his shortcomings and his mistakes? We wouldn't know about the lavish grace of God the way we do because of the insights in this book. We've been helped by the fact that Jonah was brave enough to share his story. And what I want to tell you here today is this, is is there are certain people in this world that they need to hear your story. My story will not work for them. Sam and Carter's stories, oops, I messed it up. Carter's story and Sam's story will not work for them. But your story could be a catalyst for change in their lives. And so you should share your story. See, your story matters. What God is doing in your life matters. How you are changing, how you are transforming day by day matters. So share your story. Since the beginning of the year, we've been encouraging all of you to walk alongside somebody. It's our Focus One campaign. And the best way that you can be a conduit for God's grace and God's blessing into someone's life is if you learn about your story and you learn also to share your story of grace with these people. And you allow them to see your life story as well. And I want to encourage you in that journey as you continue to learn about the grace of God, as you continue to learn about yourself and what God is doing in your life, And as God gives you the boldness and the courage to share what he has done for you. So that you can be like that blind man that once was healed by Jesus. They were asking him, how did this happen? Who is this person? He says, I don't know. I just know that I once was blind and now I see. May God bless you today in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful for the opportunity as a church to study and to go through this book. Father, we pray that you would use the content of these sermons, that you would use uh, the story of Jonah uh, to bring about change in the life of our church, but in our personal lives as well. Father, I know that there may be someone today at home or maybe out on the road listening or watching this message And, uh, Father, that they feel impacted by uh, what it says. Father, may they stop resisting grace. May they open their hearts to you and may they give their lives to you today. May they trust the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to trust Jesus with your life today, if you would like to stop resisting grace, let us know. Leave a comment in the comment section or fill our connection card. There's an opportunity there for you to connect with us. May God bless you once again.